I want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. Fathers, how many fathers we got in the room? Raise your hand. God bless you. I think you are due another round of applause. <clears throat> you know, I, uh, um, my name is Brian Fannin. I uh, serve as the small group's pastor and an elder here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, my wife and I uh, have been a part of Grace for, I think right now, almost 12 years, between 11 and 12 years. And uh, we have been so blessed by this fellowship. It's just been uh, so good. But I've only been in my role since November of this past year as small groups pastor. And prior to that, I worked for almost 18 years for uh, a large construction company. In fact, one of the largest home builders in the country. And served in different roles. And one of the latest roles that I served in is I was director of uh, marketing and sales. And that's a, that is a really cool gig until everybody starts to uh, think that they are an expert on marketing. And that's the amazing thing is that everybody has an opinion about what is a good ad, what is good posture for a company. And, uh, uh, you know, I learned a ton of things. Uh, one of the most valuable things that I learned was less is more. Less is invariably more, and that's why I think often messages, uh, Pastor Brad is fantastic about giving us a lot of great things to chew on. Well, today, I just want you to take away one or two things. But less is more in the marketing world from this standpoint. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. So, you know, companies like Toyota and Lexus and Chevrolet and car automobiles. So... um, one of the things that they made a decision about many years ago is uh, General Motors decided to name their automobiles. So we, Chevrolet has the Impala, all right? And they have a Corvette or Camaro. Um, and so all these names are attached to a vehicle. But you'll notice like Mercedes and BMW, they don't do that. Did you ever notice that? There's only numbers tied to that. And there is a reason why. It's not because they could not name them, is they chose not to name them. Because when you ask somebody what you drive, if you drive a BMW, you don't say, well, I drive a, a 385. You say, I drive a what? All right, man, you, are you guys awake? I drive a, do you? I don't. <laughs> or if you drive a Mercedes, you say, I drive a Mercedes. And there's a reason why they wanted you saying the brand. But if you drive a Camry, you typically will say, I drive a Camry. It's just the way things are. And they had the genius of getting you to say the name. The name equated with the brand. Now... As I learned that less is more, one of the things that I found out as I studied ad space is that we've seen a huge drift in the last 30 to 40 years. We love to have people laugh when they're looking at ad space. And one of the ways that they did that, especially with video, is we made men to be bumbling fools. In fact, men were portrayed in Hollywood and also from a marketing standpoint is that we don't have enough sense to come out of the rain. And the truth is, most of us could wear that badge at some times. But the problem with that is it becomes to be known as that's what men are really like. And it's just not true. My father went to be with the Lord uh, several years ago. And on December 7th, 1941... He laid on a couch in Ashland, Kentucky, and he said, uh, he said, son, I remember very well that it was a day that was balmy. In fact, uh, the window was open, and the breeze was blowing through, and there was no television, and he heard uh, on the radio, and it was late in the day uh, at that time, because of eight hours difference, that um, there had been an attack on Pearl Harbor. In essence, America was pulled into the war. And so it was near sunset at the time, and my dad said basically the city, uh, the nation was in shock. And we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Internet, there was none. 
So there's a pregnant pause. What is going on out there? The next morning, my father walked 15 blocks. And this is my father. It's an old picture because, frankly, my dad was 47 when I was born. My mom was 40. Hello, Johnny come lately. All right. So uh, it was an amazing, you know, amazing parents. Uh, parents just like you are, sinners. But nonetheless, my dad was a believer. He became a believer after um, the war. But he, tell, he told me, as, you know, he was great at telling stories. And he told me on December the 8th, he got up early in the morning. He walked 15 blocks uh, to the train station. Now, back in those days, that's where everybody, people traveled by train. And so when he got near the Ashland tra- uh, train station, uh, he said there were so many men near the platform, they couldn't even get near the place. And I'm convinced that is a more accurate picture of what happens when men wake up. So, and I believe that as men go, so goes a nation. As men go, so goes a family. As men go, so goes the church. And we've made men out to be complete idiots. And as I've said, we've, we can wear that badge well at times because we do make poor choices. And Luke chapter 15 is a place where Jesus tells a story about a family and about choices that are being made. And what happens when choices are made. And in fact, um, this particular passage is a passage that's unique to only Luke's gospel. In fact, it does not occur in Matthew, it does not occur in Mark, and nor does this story occur in John. Luke shows us some detail and layers of this story uh, as it becomes evident that become profound. Now, if you grew up in church, I will tell you, you're probably gonna be really familiar with it. And one of the problems with familiarity is it breeds contempt And as you become more familiar and you read it or hear it over and over again, uh, actually what happens is you become unfamiliar with the depths and the details of what's really going on. Now, this message today is not a sexist message about women not treating men the way they ought to be treated. We ought to be treated with respect. It's not that at all. This is not a call of indictment to marketers around the world. It's not any of that. But what it is, it is a story, as Jesus tells us, that puts on display a profound understanding about what we're like and what the Father's like. So just two things. What we're like and what the Father is really like. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. And in honor of God... Our Father, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 15, we're going to pick up in verse 11, but before we do, I want to give you some background. The first verse tells about who's on the scene. Now, often we read stories, narrative, we just jump over that, but that's a big deal here. In Luke 15, 1, I mean, you're going to see that there are tax collectors and sinners that Luke points to and Pharisees and scribes who've assembled around Jesus and he's telling this story. Now, the reason why this is so important is it paints all of us into the picture. Every one of us. We're all on the scene. And he tells three stories. He tells about lost sheep, a lost coin, and then he turns attention to humans a lost son. Verse 11. Jesus said, from the ESV, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, The younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. As an aside, there's not a lot of things that could go much worse for a Jew than to be in the pig pen among that. But that's what he was doing. And it says, it goes further, it makes it even worse. This young man was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And, he, and the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You may be seated. You know, all of us want something. That's not a bad thing. Without some desire, without some drive, we would not accomplish anything. And depending on your station in life this morning, you'll want different things. And so, dads, if you're like me, and as I look at my children, when my, my kids were small, what they wanted to do is they wanted to play. When they're really small, that's what they want to do. And they get a little bit older, they transition out of that, and they start doing this. I, I do it for myself. I do it, I do it. Sound familiar? I do it, I do it. Then sometime a little bit later, they transition to this teen year, and it's amazing what happens, at least in my household, is that they move out of that to I do it, I do it, to will you do it for me? Will you make my bed? Will you wash my clothes? Will you do this? Then as we age, we move into another place for many of us. We want someone else to do life with us. And when that comes, that's a wonderful and beautiful thing till you figure out that you're living with a sinner just like you. And when that doesn't come, your heart's wrenched, wondering if it will ever come. And then when you have children, if you're parents and you have children, you, when they're crawling, what do you want them to do? Walk. And then as soon as they start walking, they suddenly transition into the running and then you're afraid they're going to fall down the stairs. And then I wanted my daughter to talk. And then I've said to her many times, and honey, to think that I wanted you to be able to speak. <laughs> it's the natural thing. We all want something. We're driven. We all want what we believe is right for us. And it's no different in this story. This young man, what he wanted was his place in this world and the freedom to pursue what he wanted. And I remember back when I moved into that marketing role it was a big day for our family when I was told that I was being promoted to this level in the company. And we, it was a celebration. We were in Florida at the time. And it didn't take me long to figure out, though, that uh, I was transitioning into a life that looked like this. <clears throat> Get up, survive, go back to bed. Get up, survive, go back to bed. Now, anybody that sits in this room who's known the job 
that you desired and you longed for and you dreamed about and you thought it was going to bring a level of fulfillment only to find out they're bleeding me dry. You understand that sometimes getting what you want is not exactly all that you had hoped it would be. You know, Luke 15 is a story like that. It's a story about what happens when we find ourselves suddenly lost. It's a story about lost things. There's three lost things. There's a lost sheep and there's a lost coin and then there's a lost son. And Jesus is great about telling about these things. He tells them about what it's like to be lost and he tells them what goes on in heaven when lost things are found. And then he gives us insight into what the Father is really like. Now, for those of you familiar with church, you may think, I know what he's like. In fact, everybody in this room, if you have a belief in God, you believe you know what he's really like. Even the well-studied, the articulate, you have opinions, you have facts, and you have everything in between, but you think you know what he's like. This morning, I want to spend some time trying to scrub away some of that fog and to show you what Jesus said. You think you know him. Let me show you what he's really like. There's two probing questions as we come to the message this morning. Number one is this. What's the younger son reveal about us, about yourself? What does it really show us? Well, the first thing that we see, and no one likes to be told this, is that we have this streak of self-centeredness. And Jesus puts it on stark display about really what self-centeredness fully blossomed, what it looks like. So what happens in this story, if you look at verse 11, it begins that this man has two sons. And if you know and remember what it's like for the doctor to look at you and say, you have a son, dad's in this room, you know how proud that moment is. And Jesus, in one sentence, sums up, a man's got two of them. Think one's great, two's better. Then he turns quickly to what happens. The younger son looks at his dad and says, Dad, give me what's coming to me. Now, what is so amazingly startling about this story is this. In the Jewish culture, there was no Bethlehem Bank and there was no Cincinnati Commerce Bank. What there was, was land and livestock and money was kept at home, but wealth was tied up in what you produced in the land. And so when he looks at his dad and says, dad, give me my share of the estate. I don't want you to miss this. What he is in essence saying is this, dad, when you die, I know that I'm going to get my inheritance. Make it so as if you were dead and let me have what's coming to me. Shocking, startling. For those of you who sit in this room today, you've been with your child when they've looked at you and they've said, I hate you, I wish you were dead. I want you to know the father knows exactly where you are. And what's even more startling is this. The younger son, so there's two sons. The younger son would get one third of the estate. In the Jewish culture, two thirds would have gone to the eldest son. So this is crazy for him to do that. But that's what he does. He asked for it. He basically says, I want life like as if you were dead. So make arrangements for it. I want freedom. I want what I want. I want to pursue it now. 
Now, remember this. Jesus is not talking to an empty room. Jesus is not pinning this and handing it to Luke later. What he's doing is he's telling a story to people who can see themselves in the story. Maybe you can see that. Maybe the reality is, as you're aware this morning, that you have this huge self-centered streak that's running through you. It's hard to break. It's natural to us. This guy just takes it a little bit further and he asks for it all. And the second thing he does, the Bible tells us, is that not many days later, as soon as dad makes the arrangements, gives him the inheritance, well, that's not enough. What he does is he heads out to a distant country. It's time to begin living the way I want to live. Now, a quick aside, remember three stories here. Sheep, lost coin, then the son. The first is this. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and he loses one, will he not leave the 99 in open pasture? Now, what happens in open pasture? This is rarely talked about. Open pasture is the place where you can see what's going on around you. But it's also a place where wolves can see what's going on in the pasture. But it's shown here is that the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one that's wandered off. Now, one of the amazing things about sheep that you may not know is that sheep are incredibly stupid. They're not an animal that throws its head up in the, where is my master, and sniffs its way back. In fact, shepherds say that once out of sight, they're gone. As if they never had a shepherd. They just wander and wander and wander about. Now, if I gave all of you $100, 100 $100 bills today, and I asked you to go out in the parking lot and lay those $100 bills out in the parking lot because you're missing one, and go try to find the one, how many would take me up on that? You wouldn't do it. This is what's so startling. You want to know what the father's like? He comes looking for that which is lost. How does a lost coin find its way back to he who owns it? He can't do anything. He just remains lost. But he who loses the coin, she sweeps the house until she finds it. The father, the good father, is interested in what is lost. See, we are bent to wonder, but the man, he finds his way apart from his family. And it says here that he wasted what was given to him in riotous living. So basically, everything he had, he did not go off and go, okay, I need to be prudent here. I got to have this last me the rest of my life. No, it's time for a party. No expense is too great. Women like money. So he goes, buys women. And there's a careful clarification here. Don't don't miss it. The older brother later says, and that's a different subject, but he basically says he goes and wastes the money on prostitutes. So he goes, finds women who can be bought. And so that brought incredible shame on the family. He wasted all. And riotous living is that life of indulgence. See, this story is a picture of a person who basically does this. If I can just get what I want, I'm going to be happy. And the distant country is sometimes a location, but often it's not a location. You know what it is? It's the place where your heart is. Because we're prone to drift. See, familiarity with God, our our ideas about what we think God is like, breeds in us this idea, God is someone to get away from. And even as we get away and we begin pursuing what we want, the third thing that you see is this. We just are unsatisfied even when we get what we want. Look at verse 13. It says, that as he journeyed, he squandered his property in reckless living. So no matter what he did with it, it wasn't enough. He just kept 
He just kept spending. He just kept going. That is what our tendency is like. Now, you may not do that overtly. Men, you may not go waste the family fortune. But your heart subtly believes that what God wants could not be possibly what's best for you. Proverbs 27, 20, the latter part of it says this. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. See, the lust for more drives us to action. And it drives us to think something else is what makes, will make me happy. Which leads us to a place of really what's, in essence, a simple word, stupidity. We do stupid things. Now, even now, I bet you my children are cringing that I'm using that word because when they were small, we didn't let them use that word. We didn't use the word stupid. But the reality is, is the Bible is all about how really stupid we can get. It's called the noetic effective sin. Now, nobody likes to be called stupid, but the reality that we don't like to be called stupid is evidence of the noetic effective sin. That's how it works. Noetic means that it, stupid, it makes you stupid. And so we do stupid things, and we do stupid things. Why? Because we're stupid. And we become blind to how far wrong we can suddenly go. But at the heart of it is this. We are unsatisfied. We want something else. We do not believe that God, that God could have everything that we could ever really want where he is. See, there's a difference, though, between stupidity and ignorance. Let me explain what I mean. So... Ignorance is curable. Stupidity is to the bone. Ignorance means you you just don't know. In fact, I'm praying and hoping that there's people in this room today who say, I didn't really know God was like that. You're just ignorant. Ignorant is not a bad thing. Now, my wife has given me permission to tell this story. Uh, And if you know Amy Fannin, you, knew, you know that I married up. But every person has their moment, all right? And when she was a young, young Christian, Amy went to a wedding uh, in another city. And uh, she was somewhere, I guess, in her uh, late teens. And she uh, uh, had taken the Lord's Supper in the church. Now, I'm telling this story, I'm telling you like it is. Now, I may embellish just a little bit, but I'm telling you, this is what happened. So during the wedding, they served communion. And so Amy's a Christian, and she was invited, just like everybody else, to serve communion. So, But it was amazing, they did communion in a different way. And I believe that Amy single-handedly changed the direction of this denomination. (laughs) So the pastor calls for them to come and take communion. They line up down the center aisle. Amy's not a very tall woman, tall person standing in front of her. She's, it's a serious time. She's got her head down. She gets up the front. There's an elder standing there who she takes a piece of bread. And as she's been so beautifully trained, she pops it in her mouth. And she steps up, and the man in front of her is taller, steps out of the way. And there stands the pastor with a, uh, a chalice in his hand like this. There's no little cup. One cup. Amy reaches for the cup. <laughs> yeah, it's getting good, isn't it? All right. And the pastor now knows not a clue. So he holds it. And Amy pulls on it. And he holds it. And he's taller. So Amy gets up on her tiptoes and pulls it and takes a sip. That church never did communion the same way again after that. 
Actually, what she's supposed to do is take the bread and dip it. And so everybody after her just sat down. (laughs) Now that's ignorance. You don't know. Stupid is going back and doing it again. All right. See, we have this tendency, all of us have a tendency to do things that we never planned. I know nobody ever sets out to waste it all and find their life in a bad, bad spot. And eventually it leads us to a destination. Some of you are very familiar with this destination. You've been there, you've seen what God does in the midst of that destination where he starts talking tenderly to your heart, where you come to your senses. But the Bible says that this place is in verse 14. It's a place of need. It's a place of desperation. It's a place where your heart knows, I am in a bad spot. And the reality is, when you really come to your senses you know that you've brought yourself to that spot. It's not really everybody else's fault. This is the nature of noetic effect. It leads us to do wrong things continually and we arrive at a place of need. And so this young man, the Bible says in verse 17, which is the turning point, of the story, it says that he comes to his senses. Now, this is the place where all of us move from being in a place of great desperation to sudden awareness that I have left the best behind. Some of you know what that place feels like. Some of you sit here this morning convinced that you've made Decisions, there's no way out of this mess. There's no way out of this stink. Yet your mind says, there's something good at home. Literal home and the home of the Father. There's something good, there's something valuable, there's something right. In fact, he says, here, now this is what's going on in his mind. He's speaking to him. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna confess how bad, how far wrong I've gone. I've said, I'm not worthy. Take me back, hire me. And what many of us do is this. We look at him and we go, see, He's finally got it right. But listen to me. He he doesn't have it right. That's what we think. We think that the father is interested in putting us to work. We think the father is going to hand us a list. Do this, do this. Don't chew, don't smoke, don't cuss, and don't date anybody that does. We think he's going to hand us a list of you've messed up here. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you do the other? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's what we think. But see, the depths of this story actually show really what's going on in our lives. We don't understand the father. In fact, when he says, I'm going to go home and say, make me one of your hired servants, there's a part of the story that we in modern day don't understand. We think it makes sense to us, but a hired servant did not live on the estate. A hired servant lived in town and paid off debt. That's what they did. So the landowner would loan so that they get started and they would work their debt off. And as they worked their debt off, they were free. And that's what we think the father's like. We think that we're paying him back. I love, I love what John Piper says. John Piper says, do not say that grace creates debt. Grace 
pays debt. And we've lost sight of that. When the, when the son comes to his senses and he comes home and he's rehearsing this speech, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? How can I make this right? Dad, I put me to work. I'll pay it back. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm ashamed. And I've sinned first against God. But he doesn't get to his speech. Did you, you see that? He doesn't get to his speech. As he comes, the Bible says that the father sees him while he's still far off. Now, how do you see that? Is he on the roof? What's he doing? Standing on the porch? I've seen all kinds of things depicted. i tell you what Luke is trying to say. The father is continually watching and he sees. And he sees where you are. He sees where your children are. And he knows sometimes that need is exactly what they need. And as they turn home and as they start home, the father, what does he do? He gets up and he runs to the son. See, this is not a picture of a God that operates us with us the way we think. We think if we perform well, if we are neat and tidy, if we go to church and we dress up nice and we say the right things and we're nice to people and we do all the do's and don't do the don'ts, then he's happy. And when we don't, he's not. See, we, what we've done is this. Please hear this. You and I have made God in our image. We've trivialized him. We've made him like us, but he's not like us. We were created to be in his image, but the noetic effect of sin has blinded us. And we think we know the father. We think we understand what he's going to do. We think we know how he's going to respond, but he doesn't respond that way at all. What he does is he gets and he runs to the son and he embraces him and he loves him. And he clothes him and he puts the best robe on him. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the story. Now, who owns the best robe? The best robe belonged to the father. He throws the best robe on him. And the son starts to get the speech out. He's having none of it. The father says, bring shoes. He's without shoes. Put a ring on his fan. His hand for this son of mine is home. And they began to party. I'm going to tell you, if you're not a party person, I want to encourage you. You need to go practice. (laughs) Because you're going to be sorely disappointed when you get to heaven if you don't like a party. Universal theme in the three parables here. More joy in heaven when, the, when uh, there's repentance. There's joy in heaven when there's repentance. There's joy in heaven when there's repentance. Party breaks out. See, much, I love what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, much of the impotence of the American church is tied to profound ignorance and apathy about justification. Our people live in this fog of guilt. Or just as bad, they think that being a better person is what God is after, is all that God that requires. If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this. Fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, hear this. God is not after making you a better person. You don't need self-help. You don't need a leg up. You need a savior. I need a savior. I need someone to come and pick me up.
and throw his arms around me and cover my nakedness and my shame and forgive me and justify me and make me right, I'll never make myself right. That's what the father specializes in. And he does it through his son, through Jesus Christ, and he did it at the cross. We've trivialized him. Now, do you recognize yourself anywhere in the story? Do you recognize yourself in the crowd watching? See, the reality is, Jesus is painting a profound picture that we, that we need to understand who's in, who's in the kingdom. I'll tell you who's in. Only the humble who come to the end of themselves, who recognize they need a savior. They're the ones that are in. Kingdom men are humble. You're not recruited to be a star You're not recruited because you're elite. You don't need a job. You don't need a list of dues. You and I need a loving father who alone makes us right. And this is what he does. He comes and he makes us right. And he does it through Jesus Christ on the cross. Paying the price for your sin so he can run to you. And embrace you and clothe you with his righteousness. And the time we have left, I want some very specific application I want to share with you. About what Jesus taught about the Father's heart that absolutely blows away your goofy ideas and my goofy ideas about what he's really like. And fathers, you and I can learn a great deal about the kind of heart that God wants us to have with our children. And mothers, the same for you. So here they are. Number one, the father is patient beyond comprehension. Jesus' teaching here is counterintuitive to any performance culture. The father does not do what anyone expects. In essence, he says this, you think you know God, you don't know God. You think you understand what he's really like. He's actually far greater than your wildest dreams. Look, the gospel is radical. Unless you look at the gospel and you look at the cross and the empty tomb and the offer of salvation of God taking you and making you right, declaring you not guilty and giving yourself to him. If you don't see that and read that and go, holy cow, how can that be? then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the father. The moment you turn your eyes toward home, no matter how many times you've fallen, how many times you've failed, how many times you want to find your way to a distant country, no matter how far your heart is off track, when you turn your eyes, he jumps up and runs to you. This is what he's like. And he's patient. He's wise beyond any sensibility that we have. The father does things that we'd never do. Now look, I'm going to be honest. My son, if any of my children looked at me, I want you to go ahead and give me my estate now. I know the first thing would fly out of my mouth. What? Who do you think you are? What are you thinking? Oh, I just would rather you be dead. Oh, that clears it up. The father's wise beyond sensibility. Please hear this. The father understands something. Your father understands that there are some things that no lecture is going to teach. The father knows that when the heart has been away, no amount of telling the son that he's doing something foolish, no amount of lecturing him, yelling at him, beating on him is going to teach him what he needs to know as he finds himself in need. And sometimes that's exactly where your child needs to be. And I hate saying it. 
but I know it's true. I can see it here. The father knows. The father knows that some things can't be taught when the heart's been away. You got to cry out in desperation. Oh God, help my son. Oh God, help my daughter. Oh God, please do what only you can do. Turn their eyes toward home. The heart aches with the distance of his son. Now the text doesn't say this here. The text does not say, and the father's heart was broken because of the actions of the son. You know why? I'm convinced for one reason. It doesn't have to. Any of us who have seen our children make decisions that ravage our heart. You know, when they're little, they step on your toes. When they get older, they stomp on your heart. That's what they do. And the father's heart aches. And the father knows where you are right now. You're not alone. You feel alone, but you're not alone. And his love for the prodigal moves him to act. Now, if, if you uh, did not fully catch this about Jewish culture, fathers didn't run. There were primarily two people who ran in a Jewish family. Moms ran, children ran. Dads didn't run. What Luke is saying here is the father is acting like a mother. He's not concerned about the shame. He's not concerned about what anybody else is going to say. He's leading. He's going after the son. And you would be wise to do the same. So he's not waiting with a lecture. And I love how Piper says it. That is that don't say that grace creates debt. Grace pays that debt. That's what he does. I want to show you one last thing. The father does something that I think is lost on our modern church. In an effort to be true to scripture, for those of us who have made big messes in our life, we get really serious about the Bible. And that's a good thing. But it should never be at the expense of what happens with the father. When he encounters you, the sinner. What he does is he does not whip out the big stick and starts beating the kid over the head. He throws his arms around him and he calls to the servants and he calls to more than the servants. He calls to everyone. Let's have a party. Let's have some joy. There's a party in heaven when we repent. There's joy unspeakable. Heaven is about rejoicing. And I think we miss that. In fact, I think men, we're really good at missing this. I've, I'm sorry to say that I've had my children look at me and say, Dad, are you all right? You're so serious. And I'm a serious guy. But frankly, many times I've had a stick stuck up my butt. And for those of you, I'll give you a test if you've got a stick stuck up your butt. Here's the test. If you're more concerned about me saying a stick stuck up your butt than about the joy that's in heaven, just take a look in the mirror. We need to understand that the father is watching and he sees. And when you turn your eyes toward home, he comes and grabs and embraces and clothes and changes your life, the direction of your life. This kid's not going into the village to live and work off his debt. He's the son back in the household. Now I remember we, we eat at, and at the Fannin household. We try to, on several nights a week, we try to eat together at the kitchen table. And if you've not enjoyed the moment when your kids go away to college, and that first night when your daughter is gone for the first time, and you look at the table, 
and there's an empty seat. You don't know what it's like for your heart to break and to ache in ways that are unexplainable. This father knows what it's like to look at the table and see an empty seat. And now that the son's turned his heart back home, the table should be full again. And we're going to find out that it actually isn't, but that's another story for another time. But know this, the father exhibits extravagant joy. He's extravagantly joyful over you, and he can be because in his son, in Jesus Christ, he pays the price for your sin debt. You can be made right. You are made right because of what he's done, not what you do. So turn your eyes toward home. In closing, I'd like for you to read with me this passage. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. This story begins with a young man looking at his dad and saying, give me. It ends with a young man coming home and saying, Dad, make me yours. Change me. That has made possible for us because of this. Read with me. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Psalm 103, David understood this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he does. Father, bless us as we go today. I pray, turn our eyes home. Help our hearts know the joy that's in heaven. Because you are sufficient. And you are good. And you clothe us. And you make us new. In Jesus Christ. We pray, amen.